We'll continue on in our series, The Quest for the King, through the book of Kings. And we'll start this morning picking up the action in 1 Kings 18, verse 41, and we'll read through 1 Kings 19, verse 18. We continue in the, <clears throat> the drama of Elijah and Ahab. And before we read from the Word of God, it is good for us to go to God to ask us or ask Him to help us understand. Let's pray together. Your Word gives light. <clears throat> and it is of great power. You are most present to us in Your Word. So we pray that you would be present to us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Kings 18, 14, rather 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat and drink, for there is the sound of heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his, feast, his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant, and he went up and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. The seventh time the servant reported a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose, a heavy rain came on, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. <clears throat> the power of the Lord came upon Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods... Deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals in a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat. For the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by the food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. 
Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshai, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elijah will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. It's typical to begin a sermon with some sort of a story that captivates you, that, that is an illustration that draws people in to the, the story of the Scripture. But, but this story is captivating enough in its own right. There is, there is plenty of drama to draw us into God's Word right here as we, as we come into this text. We're at the, the top of Mount Carmel. At the top of Mount Carmel, we've just seen the the battle between the gods, the battle between Baal, and the battle between Yahweh, the Lord of Israel. And Elijah had gone up and he'd summoned the prophets of Baal and Ahab himself to the top. And there they had this contest. There were two altars made and two sacrifices. And Elijah said, don't set fire to the sacrifice. Whichever God sends fire from heaven, He is the true God. And so the prophets of Baal had danced and they had chanted and they had cut themselves, mutilated themselves. Blood was everywhere and Baal sent no fire. And all Elijah does is pray. And God, the true God, sends fire from heaven. And the the prophets of Baal then had been slaughtered. The people shouted, The Lord, He is God! The Lord, He is God! They went out and slaughtered all the prophets of Baal in the valley. But that was only half the battle. Baal could bring death. He, he, He could not bring life, but he could bring death. And the people saw that very plainly. And the Lord God of Israel, He could bring death as well. He had said, For so long as I desire, there will be no rain in Israel. And so for three and a half years, there was no rain in Israel. A drought came, and a drought then was even worse than a drought today. We have Lake Michigan. It would take a very long drought to dry up Lake Michigan. But for them, a drought for even one season would be disastrous. For three seasons, even worse. And so the question is, Can the God of Israel bring life? Is He a God only of destruction? Or is He also a God of creation? Is He also a God of life? So Elijah sends Ahab home. 
and he goes up to the very peak of Mount Carmel, which overlooks the Mediterranean Sea, and there he prays. The drama heightens because six times Elijah sends his servant out to go look over the sea and ask him what he sees, and six times the servant comes back and says, I don't see anything. There's nothing there. But the seventh time, the seventh time the servant goes out and he comes back and he says, why? I just see a a real small cloud the size of of a man's hand rising. Elijah says, that's it. You, go tell Ahab to get a move on. Now, why Ahab hadn't gone like Elijah told him the first time is unclear to us. Heaven only knows. But now the the servant goes to Ahab and says, you better get going. There's rain coming. And if you don't get going now, your chariot's not going to go very far in the mud. And so Ahab gets going and this great torrential rain comes. Now, don't miss this. Rain is ordinary for us. We get rain once or twice a week, typically. It's not unusual for us to have rain. But if you, if you hadn't had rain for three and a half years, and if rain only came after the fire from heaven came, and after the false prophets had been slain, then you would think this rain not to be very ordinary at all. And so the Lord not only can withhold rain, but the Lord can give rain. And Baal can do neither. And so we see what is written in Psalm 96 is true and demonstrated in this very chapter. Psalm 96, verses 4 and 5, For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is revered above all gods. Are there other gods? But no, for the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. God. Our God is victorious. God, our God is the only true God. Let the earth, as the psalmist says, fear the Lord. But now Elijah gets excited. Elijah gets excited. How could you not be excited? After everything you had just seen as Elijah, he gets excited. And as Ahab goes off in his chariot, uh, Elijah goes and runs even faster than Ahab's chariot had gone all the way back to Jezreel. Now, why did he go to Jezreel? Jezreel is where Jezebel is. That's not a place you typically want to be if you're Elijah. But you get the sense that Elijah is excited. Elijah is excited. How could Ahab not believe in the true God now? Ahab has just seen a drought end. He's just seen fire from heaven. He's just, listen to me, I mean for the first time in Ahab's life, he had listened to Elijah. So Elijah must have been euphoric. Surely things will change now. I'll go to Jezreel and I'll stop being Ahab's adversary and I'll start being his servant as we together reform the nation of Israel. Certainly that must be why I came. But it's not so. Ahab goes home and one gets the sense that Ahab is about to switch his divine allegiance from Baal to the Lord of Israel. So he goes home and he tells Jezebel everything that had happened. 
You can almost hear him. No, no just listen to me, honey. Just, just wait. There was a fire from heaven, and our prophets couldn't do anything, but all Elijah did was pray, and you should have been there. And then all your prophets, they got killed by the people. Your, our people were saying, the Lord, He is God. And Jezebel says, I don't care. Where's that Elijah fella? He's a dead man. And Jezebel walks all over Ahab like a dirty doorman. We see who wears the royal trousers in the family. And so nothing changes at all, but we see here again the ever-present notice of Scripture to marry well, don't we? Ahab, if he had wanted to change his mind, was deterred from it by Jezebel. Jezebel doesn't take the hint. She sends a messenger to Elijah, and she says, you're an enemy of the state, and if I have anything to do with it, by tomorrow, this time, you're going to be a dead man. And Jezebel has the resume to back it up. There's no reason to doubt that she was going to do exactly what she had intended to do, and so Elijah runs for his life. Elijah runs as far as he can get. He runs all the way to Beersheba. Now, sometimes in the Scripture, you'll hear the phrase from, from Dan to Beersheba. Dan is the city, the, the northmost city in the nation of Israel. He's the, it's the, the northernmost city in the promised land. And Beersheba is at the very other end. You know, Israel is a, is a, long, and, is a long and narrow, a tall and, and narrow nation. We can appreciate things that are tall and narrow. And so it means from one end to the other. And so Elijah is a prophet in the, the northern part of the kingdom. And so he runs as far away as he can get while still being in the promised land. And then he goes one day farther out into the wilderness where the Israelites had wandered so long ago. And he finds a broom tree and he says, I've had enough. Let me die. He prays that the Lord might take his life. Now can't you just feel Elijah's emotions? Feel the elation of Elijah. Feel all the excitement, the drought, and the fire, and the people shouting, the Lord, He is God. How, how long He must have longed and desired to hear those words spoken by God's people. And then the people listen and the false prophets are slaughtered according to the word of the Lord. And then the rain. And then he runs thinking that certainly Ahab will have changed now. And then the deflation. Things are not better. Things are worse. Now he's a, a hunted man. And so he asks to die. If the drought and the fire and the rain won't make things better, then things certainly are hopeless. Elijah was a prophet. He was always going to be a prophet. Being a prophet was a call for life. There was no giving up being a prophet. But what good is a prophet 
if there's no one to listen. So Elijah figures it would be better to be dead than to suffer like he has and to have no effect and to have no one listen. There's not a minister of the gospel that I know that couldn't relate to some degree with this. Now, I don't know many ministers of the gospel who would ask God to kill them. But the sense of elation and deflation is real. Ministering in, in a world that is afflicted by sin, ministering the gospel is full of high highs and low lows. And the fluctuation from one to the next can be from one day to the next or even from one hour to the next. And Elijah seemed like he was a, a rock-solid rock star of a man of God. Nothing phased Elijah. If you had seen Elijah at the top of Mount Carmel going one on 450 with the prophets, if you had seen him calling out Ahab, I mean, when the king of Israel came to him and said, you troubler of Israel, he talked back to the king and said, no, you are the troubler of Israel. Elijah looked bold. He looked courageous. It looked as though nothing could phase him. Who would have thought that just a few days later, He'd be sitting under a broom tree asking to die. But such is life as a servant of God. But Jesus was the same way, wasn't he? He was a man of sorrows. He was afflicted by grief. And what did he sorrow over? And what did he grieve? But he grieved the hardness of hearts of his friends and his enemies alike. So Elijah too a man of sorrows, a man afflicted with grief. But the Lord comes and finds him. Elijah is under the broom tree, wanting to die, deflated. If ever there was a deflated prophet, it was, it was Elijah. And the Lord comes and stirs him in his mercy. And there by Elijah is a freshly baked loaf of bread and a jug of water, just as the Lord had provided for the widow at Zarephath with the flour jar, so too he provides for Elijah. Elijah eats and then he goes back to sleep. If you came across a miraculous fire with bread on it and a jug of water, I don't know how you could go back to sleep, but Elijah goes back to sleep. The Lord comes again and he shakes him a little bit. He says, Elijah, Eat the bread. The journey is too much for you. You're going to need this. And he eats the bread again, and it gives him strength to go on a 40-day and 40-night journey through the wilderness. Miracle bread that sustains the people of God in the form of Elijah through the wilderness on the way to the mountain of God. That should sound familiar to us from the Israelites with the miracle bread of the manna sustaining them through the wilderness as they go to the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Horeb is just another name for Mount Sinai. And so Elijah goes to the mountain. Elijah goes to the mountain where Moses had met God and received the law. And what goes on underneath the mountain? During Moses' 40 days and 40 nights. We read in Exodus 24, 18, Moses entered the cloud and went up the mountain and was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And what was happening at the base of the mountain? The Israelites were making a golden calf to worship. They were committing idolatry. What are the Israelites doing 
boy Elijah is on the mountain. The same thing. Committing idolatry. But then again, we see a different, a different connection. Elijah's in the wilderness. And he's tended to by angels in his weakness. The Lord Jesus was in the wilderness. Being tended to by angels in his weakness. But then the Lord comes to Elijah again as Elijah begins to make his case. And the Lord says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah has come to the covenant mountain of God. The mountain where, where Moses received the law. And so Elijah comes to a covenant action. He comes to, to bring a lawsuit against the people of God. And his case is, is rather strong. He says, I have been zealous. That is, that I am a, a suitable prosecutor in this case. And the Israelites have rejected your covenant, destroyed your altars, put your prophets to death, and put a price on my head now as well. That's quite the case. And it seems to be open and shut. Now, Elijah might have exaggerated a little bit in saying that he's the only one left, but the point is that he was one of very few who were left. So how will the Lord answer Elijah's case? Well, the Lord doesn't answer Elijah's case right away. The Lord says, come out on the mountain. I will show you my glory. As I showed Moses my glory, so I will show you my glory. So Moses, or rather Elijah, goes out. And the Lord passes by in a wind. And the wind <clears throat> so strong it breaks rocks apart. Then there's an earthquake. And there's a fire, but the Lord was not in the wind. He was not in the earthquake, and he was not in the fire. Then comes a still, small voice. And Elijah immediately recognizes the presence of God. He throws his cloak over his face, lest he see God and die. And what is it that the Lord is teaching us and Elijah? But Elijah had seen miracle upon miracle. He had been fed by ravens. There was the all-you-can-eat flour jar with the widow at Zarephath. Then the, her son died, and he raised him from the dead, or at least God raised him from the dead in his presence. There was fire from heaven and the end of the drought, the wind, the earthquake, and the fire. These are all extraordinary things. But, but the Lord wants Elijah to know that I am not known most in the extraordinary but I am most present with my people in the Word, with my voice. That God is most present with His people in His Word. Remember that the book of Kings is written against the backdrop of Deuteronomy, the law of God. And the Lord wants to know, wants us to know, wants Elijah to know that the miraculous is not the normal, what God is normally, typically, extraordinarily with us in His Word, most present with us in His Word. And what does John the Evangelist say? The very opening words of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then go to verse 14, 
And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And who is that Word? But that Word is the Lord Jesus Christ. That God is most present with us in His Word, and His Word is Christ. That God is most with His people in Christ. And what was Jesus? Well, He did miracles as well. He could, he could feed people miraculously. He could, he could command the elements of nature. He could raise the dead, but most of all, Jesus was a preacher and a teacher. And he was a particularly gentle one at that. The prophet Isaiah speaks of Jesus this way, Behold my servant whom I hold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. The Lord who speaks encouragingly to Elijah is the same Lord who became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And he is the same one who speaks to us even today in his word. Continually magnificently in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. But then we come to the conclusion of this covenant trial. The Lord asks again, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah repeats his, his case. It's like a, a final hearing in the, in the lawsuit. Now what will the verdict be? Right? Elijah has made his case. He's brought his charges against the Lord's people. Bringing charges against the Lord's people is not a a small matter. So now, what will the Lord do? Will Will He rebuke Elijah for his grumbling against his people? Or will will He give a sentence of guilty as charged? And the sentence is guilty as charged. He says, Elijah, go back and anoint Hazael king over Syria, anoint Jehu king over Israel, and anoint Elisha. And so by doing so, he, he sentences the, the nation of Israel to the ravages of war. Hazael will bring war to Israel. And he sentences Ahab's dynasty to death. Jehu will be king and Ahab will have no more kings on the throne. Then he says, to Elijah, you have started a work, or you will not finish it. This says John the Baptist started a work but did not finish it. Elisha, he will finish the work which I have begun in you. But there's not just judgment. There's also hope. The Lord kind of gives Elijah a divine pat on the backside and says, go back out there. Things aren't quite as bad as they look. There's still 7,000 faithful people out there. Go and serve them. Go and be faithful to them. Now what do we make of this? What do we make of this for ourselves? I think the first should be to examine our own hearts. To look at Elijah. To look at his grief over the sin of God's people. And to ask ourselves, does sin among the people of God grieve me this much? Does sin among the covenant people of God afflict my heart like it afflicted Elijah's heart? 
Elijah grieved. He was moved. He was even forlorn over the the sin of God's people. Do we grieve when we look around in our own world, when we see churches, this is doing with the covenant people, people who had received circumcision, the sign of the covenant. When we look around at the, the covenant people of God and we see churches with rainbow flags and we see clergy at Planned Parenthood centers, not, not, to, not to challenge them, not to pray against them, but to condone them, to encourage them. When we see, when we see false gospels preached, prosperity gospels, when we see the, the inroads of theological liberalism reaching into our schools, reaching into our seminaries, reaching into churches, even in our own community, does it grieve us when the gospel is forsaken in our midst? Liberalism is the the Jezebel of today. I don't mean political liberalism. Think about that how you like. But theological liberalism is the Jezebel of today. It is an unwelcome intruder seeking to destroy God's covenant people. Does it grieve you to see it and to hear of it? To see churches which have fallen. I walked past just last week while I was out of town, or in town, but out of the office, I guess. I walked past downtown, I walked past Fourth Presbyterian Church. This magnificent structure. Oh, it was magnificent. All this incredible architecture. A beautiful facility. And an ugly gospel. I just walked past. I walked past twice. We walked to Chick-fil-A. <laughs> and it afflicted my heart. People who had believed Christ had built that building. And no longer. Does it grieve us? Do we care? And if we look at our own covenant community, does it grieve us? Does it grieve us that, that kids grow up in church never having heard their fathers pray? Does it grieve us that even though we stand up together at a, at a baptism and we say the words we will to the promise to care for the covenant children of our church that so many come and walk out the doors never having lifted a finger to help, that we're unfaithful to our covenant promises? That it, does it grieve us that Oftentimes we hand our children over to Sunday school teachers or Christian school teachers to do, to do our work as parents. Does it grieve us that we give our children over to teachers and we don't even take time to look and listen to what they teach? Does it grieve us to see sin in our own midst? To see laziness? Does it grieve us like it grieved Elijah. Then secondly, we see a pattern. And the pattern is that God does not do the marvelous and the magnificent over and over and over. God didn't send fire from heaven in the presence of every single Joe and Jane Israelite. God sent the fire from heaven once. And there were enough witnesses, there were enough testimonies to this, to this one action that anybody who saw it would be able to tell of it, and anybody who heard of it would have very good reason for believing that it had happened. And the same is true in our own day. 
God does not operate normally by raising people from the dead in front of every, every person. God doesn't think, doesn't, doesn't take it upon Himself to show every person in the earth that He can raise the dead by raising the dead in the sight of every person on the earth. He raised the dead once in Jesus Christ. And there were enough witnesses, enough testimonies, enough Gospel witnesses that anybody who hears of it has reason to believe and ought to believe. That God expects us to believe on His terms, and His terms are more than generous. We ought not to expect the supernatural to occur in each and every life. God allows His Word to speak for Him as He allowed His Word to speak for Him in Israel. And then finally, we have hope. 7,000 people. 7,000 people still were faithful to the Lord. God had not forgotten His people. And He had not forgotten His promises. God preserved a people who loved and worshipped Him in the days of Elijah. And He does and will do the same in our day and in the days to come. Jesus says in Matthew 16, I will build My church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus will always have a church. There will always be people on this earth until Christ comes who will worship God. And the church will always be an offensive, an offensive body. Gates are defensive. The church will always be on the offensive, bringing people out of darkness into light, and out of death and into life. And until Christ shall come, Christ will have a church. And no matter how much, no matter how much they may wish, the Jezebels of our day, whether they be, be liberalism or Islam or militant communist atheism, no matter how much they might want to quench the flame of the church, they will not because God preserves His people. And so we have hope. And I want to finish with something the Westminster Confession of Faith says. Again, we'll end with this. It says, The purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture of error. And some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, there shall be always a church on earth to worship God according to His will. Amen. Let's pray. Hmm. Most magnificent God, we are thankful for the testimony of faithful saints like Elijah who have gone before, who have suffered for the cause of righteousness, who have given lifetimes to the proclamation of Your Word at the risk 
of death itself. And we want to join our own spirits in the distress which Elijah felt at the existence of sin among the covenant people of God. We want to grieve. And we want to bring a charge against sin, our own, and the sin in your church. And we want to ask for the grace of rebuke, the grace of discipline, the grace of repentance and conversion. We want to, we want to pray that once more in pulpits which have grown cold to the gospel throughout our land, that once again they would be warmed by the presence of gospel preachers. We want to pray that pews which have become empty of true worship might be filled once more with true worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth according to Your Word, not according to the desires of the flesh or the spirit of the age. We want to pray for institutions that dot the landscape which were begun for the training of young people or the training of pastors or for the sending of missionaries or for the care of the, the widow and the orphan. That these institutions which have suffered mission creep, which have left behind their first love, that You would rekindle in them a love for You and for Your Gospel. And for our own hearts and for our own church, wherever we have grown cold, wherever we have failed to keep our, our covenant obligations, wherever we have failed to love You, wherever we have failed to love Your worship, wherever we have failed to love Your covenant children or to love Your widows, wherever we have failed in service to You, in love for our neighbor, we pray that You would receive our confession and place in us a new heart. Renew our spirit. Give us a love for the things which we have grown cold to. We might rededicate ourselves to serving You above all else. That Christ might be King of this church and of us, His people. And we also pray giving you thanks for hope. You promised even though your churches are mixed with error, even the purest of them, even the ones that have left denominations over error, that even this church has error mixed in. Whenever it flows from my mouth, may it fall fruitless on the ground. But you will always have a church. May that comfort us in the face of the persecution and the martyr of millions of believers in the last century and no respite in this one. In the face of all kinds of pressures upon your church, we give thanks for the promise that you will always have a church until you shall come. And we are thankful to be a part of that church. Amen.
Let's uh, stand.